Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we're going hunting and digging. And digging and hunting. And we're going to be real involved with the color green. It's like leprechauns, but not leprechauns. We watch the Tommyknockers. And we will have a brief discussion on the subject of what constitutes plagiarism. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> so, how was your week? Uh, terrible. How was I, your week? My week was about as bad as yours. Yes. Perhaps slightly less bad. No, I think it evens out. But we survived, which is the most we can say. We survived. We had a very terrible week, and this week I want to dedicate this episode to all of the pets that Stephen King has decided to kill. Yes. And to our pet, Zax, who did not make it from last week to this week he with us. He did not survive the week. He was a wonderful cat. He liked watching Godzilla movies. He liked playing fetch. He held intimate conversations in the late hours, simply looking at you and going, meow, 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 yep. meow, meow. <laughs> Mind you, as noisy as he could be, he did not purr out loud. He didn't learn how to purr until we got a second cat in the house right. and realized that there was something he wasn't doing that that cat was doing. Well, I think that's when he realized that he was a cat. Uh, yeah, I don't up know. up until that, that point, he would just sit next to you on the couch I think he and, thought he was a person. Right, and he thought he was a person. He would just sit and have conversations with you. Like, this is what people do. They sit on the couch, they look at these colored lights on the screen, and they occasionally say things to each other. So that's what he did. Yes. He was a lovely, lovely cat. And I don't like cats particularly, but he was my friend. Yes. So that was... Uh, our very sad... One half of our... Unfortunately. No good, very bad day right, exactly. <laughs> that we had. And the other half... Gave, granted us a reprieve, so we'll fight that fight another day. So mm-hmm. this week, though, um, amongst be better, the wreckage, <laughs> we did watch the entirety of the Tommyknockers miniseries, miniseries, which was only two nights, it right? Was roughly what three and a half hours or a little less? Three. And yeah, it was we three saw hours it. and one minute, and it was <laughs> all on YouTube, right? So we watched it on YouTube. I thought it was on one of the DVDs I had purchased, but I... No, that was the Langoliers. The other one I'm not looking forward to seeing. I don't... Okay. I'm not sure. So let's start in with the Tommyknockers. Uh Uh-huh. Tommyknockers. First, what is a Tommyknocker? Do you know what a Tommyknocker is? I have no idea. I think I went through the entire miniseries without knowing what a Tommyknocker is. Aside from some kind of boogeyman and there's a... A rhyme. There's a rhyme. Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers knocking at your door. I don't know what the next line is. That's all I could tell you. Tommy knockers come from Welsh uh, and UK folklore. Comes from the knocker, the knacker, the waka. Oh, okay. Waka waka? Waka. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Now, please understand that I am saying a Welsh word that is spelled B-W-C-A the best I can. Mm. I have no training in the Welsh language, which, from what I've seen, requires a lot of training. So, um, it is, the Cornish described the creature as a little person, two feet tall, big head, long arms, wrinkled face, white whiskers. It wears a tiny version of of standard miner's garb, and commits random mischief, such as stealing miners' unattended tools and food. So he's just a nuisance. He's not like a a terror. He's not a terror. He's a nuisance. Mm -hmm. In the 1820s, immigrant Welsh and Cornish miners brought the tale of Tommyknockers to the United States. So that's specifically a United Mm -hmm. Statesism. 
and their theft of unwashed items and warning knocks to western Pennsylvania when they gravitated there to work in the mines. Uh, so that belief in knockers in America remained well into the 20th century when one large mine closed and in 1956 the owner sealed the entrance. Fourth, fifth, and sixth generation Cousin Jack circulated a petition petition calling on the mine owners to set the knockers free so they could move on to other mines. <laughs> and the owners complied. So, well, that's very sweet of them. There's a Tommyknocker Brewery in Idaho Springs, Colorado, which is a confusingly named place. Idaho Springs, Colorado. Yes. Like Paris, Texas. Yes, like that. All right. Or Pittsburgh, California. What are we doing? <laughs> Well, as I told you, there's a Castle Rock, California, I passed on the way to a campsite. Oh, and I that's was right. Just startled. Thinking, <laughs> I thought I was having some sort of flashback towards working on the podcast, and I was just seeing things everywhere. And that is a that that was started in 1859, uh-huh. but continues and distributes still. So, okay. the brewery. Yeah. Brewery. So it's a it's a mining gnome. Brewery. Brewery. That's a hard word. I have trouble uh-huh. saying this word. Statistics. Statistics is Stati- not hard for me. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Statistical. Rural. Rural. Rural is my downfall. All right. Statistic. I so can... that is what a Tommyknocker is. Well, I'm, thank you for In clearing that up. In this case, that is not, not what a Tommyknocker is. is. So let's do our, let me read you the mm-hmm. one, ta- one sentence plot summary from IMDb. Okay. All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. The small town of Haven becomes a hotbed of inventions all run by a strange green power device. The whole town is digging up something up in the woods, and only an alcoholic poet can discover the secret of the Tommyknockers. Now, there's something very important missing from that, and that is an alcoholic poet with a metal plate in his head. Right. <laughs> because that is why he is the one. He is the one. Uh, I wonder if that was a tip of the hat of the Welch. Uh, origins of the story. It's an alcoholic poet. Welsh, not Welch. I'm sorry. It's not a grape juice. <laughs> Welsh. It's too early in the morning for me to pronounce words we properly. We don't usually record statistical in the rural. Morning. You want to dive into? Do you want to talk a little bit about what I just said? Do you mm. want to talk about the historical origins and the well, fact that right, these so, are uh, we, these are stolen? Stolen I, Valor. I, uh, one of the critics for this program said that the Tommyknockers, is, or of the book, essentially rewrote an American version of Nigel Neal's Quatermass in the Pit. Nigel Neal is the winner of the Somerset Mom Award and twice nominated for the BAFTA and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association. We've talked about him before because he is responsible for creating a genre of science fiction that did not exist before, which is mixing ancient themes with modern uh, science, coming up with stories like the Quatermass stories about a You're basically missing, mixing mythology yes. with uh, technology. Yes, and he did it wonderfully. He did stories about possession and doppelgangers, but all with a science fiction approach to it. And one of his stories, The Quatermass in the Pit, is about a group of people digging in the 1950s, digging for a railway tube in London and finding a rocket ship. 
Okay. Covered with occult symbols. Cool. And it programs people's minds to, and it's a wonderful story. Spoiler alert. That's what happens in this movie. Everyone should see that. It is a wonderful <laughs> kind of twist on the ancient astronauts. However, there is also another film based on the book The Gods Hate Kansas by Joseph Millard called They Came From Beyond Space. And I will read you the synopsis of that plot. Several meteors land in a field in England. Those who approach them are seemingly taken over and barricade the area from intruders. A scientist is immune to that takeover due to a metal plate in his head. Mm-hmm. And he enlists the assistance of a friend who must melt down his silver cricket trophies to make a helmet to protect him from alien influence. Oh, is this where tinfoil comes from? This might be. And Is this where the tinfoil this, hat comes from? The book, you know, The Gods Hate Kansas, which is a weird title for, you know, a science fiction novel, really. Um, I've never read. I've seen this film growing up. And the moment I heard that he had a metal plate in his head I, uh, in the Tommyknockers, I knew exactly where this was going. It's become a trope, even though people don't really remember where it came from. So let me also go into Stephen King's um, views about mm-hmm. this book. So okay. his King, views about his own book. Yes, and, and what he cites as influence, because right. it's neither of those things. Really? Yes, although those things are definitely in Stephen King's DNA. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe it was more subconscious than conscious. Uh, so this book was written... Uh, well, published in 1987. He views the book as, quote, an awful book. Okay. So that's something. In, autobi- in, in his autobiography on writing, he attributes the basic premise to the short story The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. uh, which may owe itself very much to the sources that you... Cited? No, is he? It was, did he predate? It pre-existed that significantly. I, I don't know yeah. chronology, so <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. He also used a poem from his childhood as the book's preamble. Late last night and the night before, Tommy Knockers, Tommy Knockers knocking at the door. I want to go out. Don't know if I can because I'm so afraid of the Tommy Knocker man. All right. Yeah. Uh, the writer and critic King Newman said of the novel that King had more or less rewritten Quatermass in the Pit. Mm-hmm a television serial from the late 1950s. King wrote The Tommyknockers at a time when substance abuse was a significant part of his life. That's a that's a real nice way of putting it, Wikipedia right. author. Um, the metaphors for addiction can be found throughout the book. I mean... Yeah, it's about a recovering alcoholic. It's a recovering alcoholic right. in this. Uh, in an interview with Rolling Stone, he acknowledged that the quality of his writing suffered during during the period of his drug use. Um, it's This is the last... He says, this is an awful book, and it's the last one I wrote before I cleaned up my act. So, uh, the other themes include the dangers of unchecked technological advancement, mm-hmm. just because we can, doesn't mean we should, mm-hmm. and the corrupting influence of power. See... I don't know. He's citing Colorado Space, but having read that as uh, the, the the handful of quality Lovecraft, because there's a lot of bad Lovecraft, it doesn't relate to that so much as it's taken direct plot elements from the other things that I mentioned. Quatermass in the Pit, though, is so much deeper in scope and has so much more to say that it makes this kind of look very superficial by comparison. Right. Well, there's a well on a farm... Uh-huh. 
Right. With a mysterious color emerging from it. So, I mean, that's... That might explain his fascination with the color green. Woof, the color green, y'all. You will hate the color green. If you like the color green at the beginning of this movie, you might not hate it at the end. If you're ambivalent towards the color green, by the end of it, you're going to hate the color green. I'm wondering if it's cultural. Right? If what's cultural? Cultural. For instance, there's a horror association with the color green here. It's like in Italy, it's yellow. Oh. That's where the word giallo comes from. Well, that was... It's the color That's interesting. The, the color of horror movies, mm-hmm. the coloring of horror movies, uh, has come under recent study, I want to say. That's interesting. Um, with Jordan Peele doing the directing mm-hmm. of the movies that he has done, the two quote-unquote horror movies that he mm-hmm. has done, people were writing that he colored them incorrectly. Like, that's not... Um, There's on. an incorrect way of coloring a horror movie? Well, I want to start with Jordan Peele is focusing people of color mm-hmm. in his movies. Right. And you have to light people of color differently than you light white people. Right. Or they don't look good. Right. See? As anybody who's seen older films every, can tell Yes, exactly. Everything where black people are put Mm-hmm. on the screen with white people and the white people are the quote-unquote stars so the mm-hmm. black people look sallow or right. or you can't make out their features because the light is hitting them badly. Makeup has always been difficult. Ben Nye, God bless him, the man who began developing makeup for African-American actors. So this is from uh, when Us was coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't out yet. This is a person on Twitter and this became like a a topic of conversation. Like a topic of conversation, okay. right. So this is a random person on Twitter. We don't... It, I promise you it's a white person on Twitter mm-hmm. who is neither a filmmaker nor a film critic, I would guess. All right. So this is a, the quote. The trailer for us suggests that Jordan Peele still doesn't understand that horror films are green and amber. There's a definite color coding for film genres that instantly labels for them for what they're supposed to be. It's all through a blue filter with a lot of muted or dark colors. It's a serious film. If it's blue and orange, it's action. If it looks like a 70s, 8mm film colors, it's quirky indie. You rarely see green in space. If you do, we're probably moving away from science fiction and into fantasy that happens to be set in space, like 2001 versus Star Wars. So that's a pretty well, simplistic I don't know that view person is of a person, person who is not a cinematographer. That Idiot. <laughs> the most successful horror films for quite a long time were in black and white. For instance, also, and try Ari Aster's films are colored. Go beyond that. Very Mario Bava and Dario Argento's well, yes, but incredible, also, super saturated use of color does not rely on that yeah. kind of color coding. Although I would argue that because I think that the Argento specifically colors like his light is a specific type of color mm-hmm. while the other things are not but um blue he does a lot but of also blue i think he, this is also focused on u.s filmmakers right. i doubt that this person has seen right, mario bava and dario Argento. uh yeah no it's just it's very much like and and i would actually agree with it in terms of things like the way that four people have mm-hmm. designed movie posters right. where if it is orange and blue that is a fucking action mm-hmm. movie always and it's always the same type of shot like right. but that's not 
Well, that seems to be almost as if that's a shorthand the for the person who creating that. it, not a shorthand right. for. So you, you effectively, the this is color editing, and it doesn't really. I mean, I'm color blind, so right. I can't see half of this nonsense. Right. I can understand that, for instance, uh, Guillermo del Toro often uses only four colors mm-hmm. in setting up a scene, but. Um, but once again, I'm talk- we're talking right. here, and I don't know if this is a distinction that you would be able to understand, mm-hmm. the lighting versus the actual... Yes, no, I, I do. And that's why I said set. when you're, you're watching something like Suspiria, there are blue filters and blue lights on yeah, the characters. Yeah, that's true. He uses that a lot because it gives us weird, for again, for Caucasian people, gives it a Cast, really yeah. weird corpse-like pallor to mm-hmm. their faces. Yeah. Stephen Where King's, it just makes black people look good. Black people look good under blue light. In moonlight, all black people I mean, are blue. Yeah, whoever the does the cinematography right. for movies like Moonlight specifically. Right. Yeah, um, that, which was the title of the story that it was based on. That's what and whoever did the cinematography for the upcoming um, Queen, Slim and Queen. Uh-huh. Well, there was when um, Norman Jewison directed the Soldier Story, the adaptation of the play. Uh, there was one critic who complained that the white characters were lit poorly. And the defense was for a predominantly black cast. Yeah, then the white characters get to be lit poorly, finally. Colors of black people. Mm-hmm. Harold Rollins uh, is different from uh, um, from Denzel Washington, is different from Adolf Caesar. There's right. lots of different skin tones. Right. Uh, and Robert Townsend, all these other actors mm-hmm. are in it. It wasn't lit for the white people. It was lit for them. Right. And so, yeah, they're going to come across being on an end of the so, spectrum yeah. that makes them look kind of pasty. Or you, that's or we finally right. figure out what the the makeup workarounds. Or not just get the a, makeup. Get a makeup the lighting. Like, Nowadays, you have the ability to do so much color correction. You could also, yeah, light each person yeah. separately and, and things like that. But, yeah, no, it, it's just it's infuriating. But this movie... Heavily relies on this bright green, mm-hmm. um, like a DOS uh, 1980s computer. It's that green that was on the black when you only had two colors on a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Now I'm on a maybe 70s computer. This bright green color that is everywhere and comes from nothing. The, the color emanates from quote-unquote alien technology, but there's no rocks or batteries or there's nothing that is su- supposed to in the world emanate this color but everything is emanating this color if it is thought up by these people in this thrall right and i it makes no sense it makes no sense and it's deeply upsetting so how deeply did you want to get into the plot um let's because there's let's, a lot of plot can... but it doesn't quite yeah we I don't mean, have like, to... like kind of the golden years, there's a lot of plot that doesn't really get anywhere. Get anywhere. It's so, a repetition of the same thing over and over again. So the the plot is centered around Bobby Anderson. Mm-hmm. That's Roberta. That's a lady, everyone. Bobby mm-hmm. with an I. Uh, played by Mark Hogenberger. Played, who, who plays the hell out of her part. She's she very good. Uh, they make her look very terrible mm-hmm. through this movie. Um, she has a dog. Named Peter. Yes, the dog's name is Peter, like a person. I don't know if I like it or not. And a boyfriend, that's Jim Gard Gardner, played by Jimmy Smith. And we meet, they are in Haven, Maine. That's outside of Castle Rock because there are Castle Rock people in this movie. 
but it doesn't take place in Castle Rock. And uh, she is a writer. She writes Western fiction. And he is a poet. He writes poets, poems, poems. And uh, he's an alcoholic. He goes to meetings and also drinks in this movie, so he's struggling. (laughs) Uh, She, out walking her dog one day in the woods, uh, trips over a thing that the dog does not enjoy and starts digging it up. And that is this weird big spaceship, which must be like a half a mile big. I, I have to tell you something that bothered me yes. about the spaceship. <laughs> I mean, when they're inside of it, it seems mm. massive. Right. And it seems like it takes up half the county. What I didn't like is that... And presumably she, it's been there for a long time, but hasn't affected anybody. So that's weird. Digging <sighs> is, 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 is literally something you could trip over. The spaceship is so close to the surface, it's not like they were digging and found no. the spaceship. Uh, and there are trees around. So. Right. But what I, I thought was one of the real failures of the story is that at no point do you get the sense they're digging down. No. They're just clearing up. It's the, the kind of excavation that gets done in this film can be done with a rake. Yeah. And then suddenly there are parts and structures of the, the spaceship that are poking out of the ground five feet high, and you're thinking, but they didn't dig down, so yeah, it's, where did these structures come from? It's very it's wonky. It's badly designed. It's yes, really, it the was set design is not... Very unconvincing, so good. I'm going, well, wh- where did that come from? All these sort of Yeah, it's like you and, come upon this uh-huh. half mile, and you, but you don't see it. It's flat ground. Right. Um, but, it, but once they dig it out, it's like you would come upon this half mile mound. Right. That just needed to be dusted off like uh, exactly. like in an old movie where they show archaeologists right. just dusting. Gingerly just dusting. Gingerly it dusting everything. Right. Oh, I found it. Let me just gingerly dust for the next 75 but, years of my yeah, life. At no point. The trees never shrink behind them. They're never nope. excavated into a pit. There are right, um, they're going around trees, which trees have root systems. What? Right. I don't. It was like <laughs> this. That part of the movie was so poorly thought out. Yeah. And it's like this weird blocky thing. Like it's, it's all angles. It's all uh, right angles. Right. Like squares built on top of other squares, which I don't like as a spaceship design. That's that's a personal. It was almost as if someone to me, took one of the the because uh, we saw two thousand one. Yes. And there's all sorts of uh, the models that were really distinctive in that they had a lot of external structures to them. You know, tanks, and because the idea mm-hmm. is that we helped to design by NASA engineers, so they said, oh, well, there would be external fuel tanks. So, so it's almost like they were trying to grab that part of the design, but it didn't make any logical sense that you don't dig down to find these. They just sort of pop out of the ground once you start digging, which is the impression that you got. Yeah. Like it was, it was responding to them and pulling through the surface, but never disturbing the earth. I don't know what. Yeah, I, I don't get it because you're right. There are trees. It seems to be enormous, so the trees are growing on top of it. Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. So I'm, um, I've, my notes didn't make any sense. So I'm in the Wikipedia page and it doesn't make any sense either right. because it literally says this. One day they stumble over a man made stone object protruding from the ground. Well, it's no, not it's man-made. not man made and stone. That's it's one point. of those things. Uh, well, mm. not natural. Okay. Not natural, I think, is the term that they're going for, but also man made stone doesn't work. 
and then they begin excavating the object, discover a series of connected cubes made of an unknown unknown alloy. So weird metal, not earth metal, some other metal. Now, uh, the dog starts undergoing a golden years transformation. Mm -hmm. Petey gets younger, his eyes get better, um, because Petey was getting old. His eyes start getting better, and he's more spry. Uh, all of the townspeople who are involved in this, though, start uh, getting, I don't want to say older, but their teeth start falling out. They get very sallow. They mm-hmm. all get insomnia. They can tele- tele- telecommute. That's not the word. No, telecommute. They can telecommute. Which <laughs> they is can... When they call in to tell somebody about the spaceship they found. <laughs> yeah. They communicate telepathically. Telepathically. They also are inspired to create really pointless devices. They, yes, they begin inventing. Mm -hmm. And their inventions are such small potatoes. It's Mm. like, it's like a con, that's like the condemnation of this town, I think. So let's start with the other people in the town. So we've got two people at the post office. We've got Joe Paulson and Nancy Voss. Now, Nancy Voss is Joe's boss. Mm -hmm. She is at least. 10, but probably closer to 20 years younger than him. Absolutely. She is played by Tracy Lords. Yeah, that Tracy Lords. And they bone down constantly. Now, and she is way into it. In, and I understand. In defense of Tracy Lords, right? This is one of the I'm first not, roles. No, no. This is one of the first roles that she took after ending her career in as an underage actress in adult films. Um, she apparently in interviews is a very lovely, self-controlled person. I'm sure she is. I think that she was cast because she was still following the reputation of being that Tracy Lords. So most of what she does in this film is do a kind of a weird Jessica Rabbit, she vamping is around in very short skirts <sighs> and pouting her lips a lot. And yeah, and the townspeople don't mm-hmm. like her because they're like she's definitely a whore and she's definitely breaking up a family. Right. And the only person who doesn't realize that that is the case is Joe Paulson's wife, who is the deputy. <laughs> yeah, that really... She's that, a cop. She is right. smart and also her job is to notice shit. And she, and she allows him to right. treat her like crap. He's an asshole. Fuck now, that dude. Fifty young Mr. 70s actor in early 80s. I like him, but he's a dick in this movie. Well, but this is something we mentioned during the film. So Tracy Lords is just so hot for Mr. Dad Bod with his thinning hair and his pot belly. And again, these things are not bad on their own. It just looks ridiculous because they are constantly having sex in this movie. He's tackling her on top of the mail sacks. I mean, just constantly. Right. These two, in public, in in the town's post office that has windows to the world, they are making, like, it is terrible. And again, Tracy Lords didn't prove her acting skills. It looks like she's still in the porn movie. It really does. I'm trying to think of the various, like, the things that they invent. So Bobby invents a telepathic typewriter. So her typewriter, well, hooked up to one of those boxes of paper that's just all right. one paper <laughs> with the... Um, like computer printout paper like, from back in yes, the day. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So she's got a word processor hooked up to that and it's just typing out what uh-huh. she thinks so she can dig and still write. It's very convenient. Nancy Voss, Tracy Lords, comes up with a... A, a steampunk-looking 
kind of it's all all the devices are vaguely steampunk. Oh, looking. I'm not. I wasn't thinking about that. I thought that was Joe's. Yeah. Jo, there's a mail sorter that just shoots mail into like the a correct ninja. place so that they could fuck some more. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I was going to talk free. about her laser lipstick. Oh God. Which is. Which the is worst. the tackiest invention. And it's it's like a bad James Bond moment when she like, you know, she goes into a straddle stance and pulls out her lipstick and shoots some police officers with it. it the, somehow the beam goes in two different f- directions and shoots yeah. them. <laughs> That's the second time we see it. The oh first time God. we see it, she melts a statue and you were like, what is happening? Right. And, and that scene also, as I said, this this is one step up from porn, more like, you know, Cinemax in the middle of the night kind of thing. She goes after one of the characters dies. We won't spoil that for you because you might want to see this film. It's very amusing. And she goes in her widow's weeds and apologizes. We had fun, but now I have a bigger purpose. And then she throws off her black morning gown and her hat. And she has a bright red dress underneath. And she's firing lasers in the cemetery. It was just like the... Bizarre. Yeah. I don't know if that seems so, in the book. I hope to God is that, it is. That's after Joe's... Because she's mourning Joe, right? Right, yeah. So he dies. Spoiler alert. There was my spoiler. Then we have... Bryant Brown, his wife Marie, they mm-hmm. run the diner. They've got kids named Hillman. That's right. They Hillman. name their child Hillman. They call him Hilly. And Davy. And then we've got Sheriff Ruth, who is probably my favorite character. She has a little love affair with the sheriff from Castle Rock. And also she collects dolls. And yeah, they're definitely coming back later. So right. many dolls in the police station. What the fuck? It is That's deeply upsetting. You can collect dolls, but bitch, take that home. Nobody you, wants you that just, in the police station. It's one of those things that doesn't make any sense in the film. Like, why, if you have a laser ray, why do you put it in lipstick? Well... If you are... Because that's what she carries. Look at her. What would she have with her at all times? Lipstick. But it just... It seems dumb. And the same thing with... Here's the police station. Here's where we book the criminals. And here's my collection of dolls. Yeah. That are all creepy looking to start with. Because very early in the film... um, uh, Deputy uh, Paulson, Becca Paulson... Yeah. Is showing some kids around... Yeah. And the kids are freaked out by the dolls right away. Yeah. So it's like they're the, right. the dolls were bad to start with. Yeah. And then they just get worse. And then they get worse. They eat her later. Right. Well, they, they definitely come to life and eat her later. Why? I don't know. There's a lot of that in the movie. There's a lot my of... My sense is uh-huh. that... Well, my sense is that Stephen King was doing a lot of drugs. But I think that if... This whole thing is operating on telepathy. Uh-huh. That those dolls didn't come to life no, and no, actually eat her. The aliens wanted her to believe that was what was happening, and then she would die of fright, or you know, her heart would stop, or whatever. That's what I think. I think that's what. It but I don't true. know. <laughs> I'm just trying to add some. Well, let me be very impolite at this point. We understand that Stephen King was writing this by rote, all right, and that he was very high. I would maintain that a lot of the characters in here are characters we've seen before. Right, but Particularly also... Particularly the kids. The kid magician reminded me a lot of the kid magician in Salem's Lot. Right. No, that's yeah, true. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, well, I'm going to put all but, these different elements together and... But I don't... 
I'm actually going to not blame Stephen King for this because this is an adaptation. All right. So you're and you know what you can do for an adaptation? You can make shit better. Mm-hmm. You can take stuff that yes, makes literally no sense and give it some sort of sense. And at this point, Stephen King did not write this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, the the movie. It was written by Leonard Cohen. Oh, no. <laughs> no. It was written by Lawrence Cohen. I would Cohen. love to see Leonard Cohen's version. <laughs> I would not. It was written by Lawrence Cohen, who worked on Carrie. Uh-huh. He also did a simplified film adaptation of Peter Straub's novel Ghost Story. Which was a pretty good in film, 1981. So this is a person who understands mm-hmm. how to adapt a book for a movie and that things sometimes well, need to change and just opted not the to? The disappointing part is <sighs> that it was supposed to be directed by Louis Teague. Yes. Who we've seen before. We've seen his work before. Um, Cujo is a hell of a good movie. Yeah. But uh, he dropped out at the last minute and replaced him with somebody who I don't knew, know if they have a ha- handle on the material. Because there were parts in here that were just outright laughable, like he was directing a send-up of the film. Yeah. So we should say before we get to... I don't know what's happening <laughs> too far into it that uh, Jimmy Smith comes home mm-hmm. pretty early in the thing from a a poetry event event right, somewhere else. He was doing a reading. He also made a fool of himself because he drank. Why did he do that? Shouldn't have done that. Um, he was being really heavily criticized by his agent. Is that that? Same? Guess what. I, I understand that. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, if you're looking for motivation... Yeah, I know, And then but... he gets this conspiratorial... Re- there was just like, yeah, that was one of but my... But we've seen him at an... The right. first place we see him, actually, is a meeting. Yeah. He's at an AA meeting. Right. And then he does the reading, and he does an old poem, not a new poem, because mm-hmm. he hasn't written anything new. Why? Alcohol. I'm sorry, if you hear running steps, we have a tiny horse in our house, and I don't know it's what she's hippos. doing. So, Jimmy Smits is, who, by the so, way, is also doing a good job, I have to say. Both he and Mark Helgenberger are doing the best Mark Helgenberger, with yeah, what they have. does a great job. She's beautiful. Over the course of the film, the makeup starts really... They make her very skeletal, sallow. Uh, they make her very thin. It looks like her hair thins. Yeah. Um, her face gets real gaunt. And that's probably the most effective part, horror part of the, the film, watching yeah, her Yeah, the makeup is quite good. Yeah. Um, he, she, she, she brings uh, Guard. His name is Jim Gardner. He goes by Guard. I'm not on board with this choice. It's but very metaphorical fine. for the whole film. Uh, out, he's the first person she wants to see it. Mm-hmm. And he touches the little piece that's protruding at that point. And uh, the metal plate is almost ripped out of his skull. Right. And so he can't touch it anymore. And then as the telepathy starts growing, like the whole town now is starts getting infest, in, infected. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not they've physically gone up there, it's unclear. They do this out of sort of weird, in a sort of weird order, because at the beginning, Bobby doesn't want anybody else to right. see it. But then everybody starts to be affected by it anyways. It's it's nonsensical. The word is nonsensical, uh, but he can't be. His mind can't be read. So um, the diner 
the family at the diner, the dad makes a BLT sandwich maker. I mean, sure. <laughs> if everybody orders BLTs and you're just sick of making them, I guess that's a thing you could do. Uh, and Hilly, the son, constructs a magic mas- machine, which he demonstrates at this birthday party, and he's using an old um, foot-pedaled uh, table for a sewing machine. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. And uh, he makes a couple of things disappear, and then his finale is he's going to make his brother David disappear, and he does, and then he can't get him back. Right. Of course he can't. I knew that too. It was going to happen. I was like, well, don't do it with a live thing. Uh, and then he is deeply upset. Like, because he didn't mean yeah, he didn't, to he disappear his brother. His brother. Uh, and then everybody believes that he ran off. So the sheriff leaves the town in a, an unsuccessful search. Uh, Marie, uh, despondent over the disappearance, becomes hysterical. Because that's the other thing is they're all insomniacs now. Mm. They're not sleeping. That's probably why they look so terrible. Uh, his the, the dad loses interest in the missing son and just starts working on his inventions some more. So Well, also, in a really gross move, uh, Joe Paulson uh, says that the missing boy is the best thing that ever happened to him because he now has more time to hang out with uh, his boss and have sex while his wife is out hunting. Out for hunting him. for a child that's missing, yeah. That, yeah, he's real garbage. So what I feel is that, whereas last week we were talking about needful things, yeah, and how with one or two exceptions, the people in this town are actually really sweet people, and what happens to them is a nightmare because they are genuinely nice people. Yeah. This town is filled with people I'd never want to meet. <laughs> the thing is, though, I don't think that the people... I think Nancy and Joe are bad. Mm-hmm. I, I don't... Yeah, they're bad people. Um, they deserve each other. Right. Deputy... Joe's wife does not deserve... Like, doesn't deserves so much better than him. So, divorce him. Let them be together. That family... I mean, it's hard to run a small business. Um, the two kids, though, and I think that I would have had more sympathy. They're also them. not good actors. Yeah, and that was my good. issue, is that they are not good. And we've seen so many great child performances in Stephen yeah. King movies, Yeah, starting with Lance Cohen and Salem's Lot or The Girls and Carrie. And it's and, very much like right. um, a lot of, I mean, Stephen King writes about kids a lot. Uh-huh. And a lot of times they are a primary focus and should be maybe the most important to cast because right. when kids are not good on screen, it brings everything down. It it's like, oh, I'm watching something. But up to the modern It movies, they generally understand this. And yeah, in but this in, one, this, in this film, it's a big miss because he looks like he's... It was literally like two kids showed up and they were like, right, oh, we need lines. some kids. <laughs> so, so let's have them. They've never acted. There's, I don't know if they've acted There's before. a scene with uh, E.G. Marshall the great E.G. Marshall, who he'd seen in Creepshow before, giving that bravura performance in the apartment where he's infested with roaches. Mm-hmm. E.G. Marshall plays a grandfather in this movie. And he has a lot of scenes with the kids. And there's one scene in particular where the boy who's made his brother disappear gets really upset at his granddad because you're the one who introduced me to magic. This is your fault. Yeah. And you want that scene to have a kick, but the kid is so obviously line reading. 
Yeah. That it just fails. And you're going, this is your big moment right now to to get us on your side and make you understand how, like a kid, you're going to blame everyone else for something that you didn't think through. But, um, and also the kid honestly didn't believe that this was going to happen. Right. But, uh, yeah, you just, it, it doesn't work because the actor isn't able to bring that emotion into that scene. Right, he just doesn't... He's, he's also acting with one of the great 20th century character actors, so that doesn't like help Quentin at all. Tarantino, get off the screen, dude. Right. You're, not, you're out of your depth. Um, so, then we have our first sort of death, and that is that Joe fucking comes home to Becky, mm-hmm. the deputy sheriff, and is like, fucking, where's my dinner, or whatever. Right. And why are you watching this stupid show? Now, the show has been talking to Dep- Deputy Becky. The television talks to her frequently. And saying, he's having an affair and you should kill him. And she's like, mm, yeah, probably. <laughs> and Joe is like, turn off this show. I hate it. And I'm like, first of all, and he's fuck watching, you. It, it, she's watching, what is it? Something like Love Connection or it's a dating like show. That. Yeah, it's like that. that. Um, and then... He says, turn it off. And she says, turn it off yourself. And she's like, he's like, what did you say to me? And I'm, and she goes, turn it off your damn self. Like, if you want it off, mm-hmm. you can turn it off. And then he does, he turns it off. But she has set it to electrocute him, and so he dies. And, and then that, she goes insane and goes into a Again, is a comical special hospital. effect. Like, he lights up from the inside. It's just... It's a cartoon. And yeah. I don't understand that. I don't understand why there's so many moments in this movie that feel like somebody just sent up the material. Yeah. Was not taking it seriously. And so she ends up to ends up in the psychiatric hospital talking about the Tommyknockers. Mm-hmm. And then Hilly attempts to recreate the magic machine to bring Davy back, but he repeats the nursery rhyme about the Tommyknockers and then suffers a seizure and is rushed to the hospital. And that's how we end episode one. No, how did you feel going into episode two? Were you? I mean, we barely or? could tell that was happening. Right. I was eager to finish it. <laughs> okay, I think is where I was at. Cause that's like this is the task that God gave us. Well, the thing was, I it did not make any sense up to now, and mm. I knew that it was going to continue not making sense all the way. Right. Through, but I was curious on as to what kind of sense it thought it was making, if that makes sense. Like, like what do you think the reason? Movie, what do you think your right. reason, reason for being is? Because it isn't. Whatever you think it is, it definitely well, isn't. But I'm curious to know what you think. This first half, for all the weird comical moments in it, was actually more serious than the second half when we start getting laser lipstick and all sorts of nonsense. We get the laser lipstick. We also get some aliens that are... No. They're not terrible. We will we will discuss that because I think the aliens themselves for the brief moments they appear on the screen are actually pretty good. The moment when he picks one of them up from an alien-powered machine and throws it and it looks for all the world like something you'd buy at a, a spirit superstore because it's incredibly stiff and light, and he just sort of pitches it over. Again, looks like something that was done for an SNL sketch. It does not look like you're supposed to take it seriously. But anyhow, so to go on with with segment two. Yeah. So the search continues, but interest in almost everything but their own invention starts happening. So, Mm -hmm. like, 
people just stop caring about anything about the except these little inventions that they're doing. And um, we find out that Hilly has a massive brain tumor and has lost several of his permanent teeth. So that's fun. Uh, the parents care less and less. The townspeople are creating more and more fantastic uh, devices and every affected person seems drained of energy in life. Now, meanwhile, fucking guard is walking around the town like, what the fuck is going on with everybody? And I, he understands that whatever's happening there is not happening to him because of this metal plate in his head. He does get that because it was so apparent that that was what was causing the issue the first mm -hmm. day he went out to the thing. So the sheriff finally stumbles across Bobby Anderson unearthing this big QB thing. So Bobby's been doing it alone till now. Uh, the grandfather, who you mentioned earlier, he starts researching the town's history, cons convinced that like there's a groundwater thing or something that caused Hill's uh, Hilly's brain tumor, uh, and uncovers a newspaper articles going back more than two centuries, stop documenting inexplicable mass murders, deadly hunting accidents, and Native American tribal chief claiming that the area is cursed. So we've got a real Castle Rock situation on our hands, but we're not in Castle Rock, guys. We're in Haven. Don't forget, this is not it. It is something else uh, 20 miles to the left. <laughs> like, <laughs> all, And y'all, all of Maine is cursed. <laughs> Just stay out of Maine. Um... Nancy makes her disintegrator ray in a lipstick. Most of the stores are closed at this point. Many towns functions cease as the, everybody's working on their weird devices. Um, the sheriff thinks that Bobby might have had something to do with Davy's disappearance uh, and almost arrests her. And then she goes back to the office to call, is it the the sheriff in Castle Rock mm -hmm. to like get back up because her one deputy is in the mental hospital. So it's just her, I guess. Uh, and then this is when all she's been warned, you have to join us or die. Join us or die. Or join us or be punished. The fucking dolls eater. The doll's eater. Nom, 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 nom. She's punished. She's assaulted by her dolls. They, she's not killed. She's knocked unconscious. Because <laughs> I do well, think she I comes think back later. Isn't she dead? I thought she I was think dead. she's... Something she's falls missing on her head. Because she's in the... Oh, the spaceship? Or No, in the shed. The okay. battery shed. Um... So Duggan and two other troopers, Duggan is the Castle Rock sheriff who has been dating Ruth. Mm -hmm. I like that little piece, actually. Yeah, I like their little dates. Right. Goes and is like, everybody's fucked up. Y'all look like shit. Your hair is falling out. Your eyes are baggy. Your skin is pale. You're all exhausted. He starts feeling sick. He leaves. And then he gets better. Um, and then the other two troopers get... Z -z 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 Zapped by Nancy Bugs. Bug zapped by a weird lipstick 
beam that comes in two different directions when you fire it straight ahead. I don't know what this is about. It's telepathic, too. It's okay. It does whatever you want it to do with your brain. This now sounds None like, of this makes sense. This so I, like I have decided that this is what it is. We're, we're following the adventures of Axe Cop at this point. <laughs> more and more stuff disintegrates, and Guard just is like, I need to fake it. He's basically taken prisoner. He's forced to dig. He's not allowed to touch the thing because it will rip the metal out of his skull. Nobody wants to see that. So, um, but he is forced out into the area to dig. And then he sort of, one night, and, like, Bobby still wants to have sex with him. Like, that's the thing. They're also all, like, ramped up. They're all Mm -hmm. horned up. She's like, just because you haven't become doesn't mean I don't want you. And he's like, well, I'm all set. I'll sleep on the couch. Because you are gross. Um... Although she's sleeping at this point, which is, you know, I guess an improvement. He pulls out one of his own teeth and it's like, oh, it started. Like he's trying to trick her and it totally works because she's dumb. And they find this like what looks like a like an entrance. And he's like, well, don't let anybody else see it. You should be the one. You're the one who found it. You're the one who should go down into it. And... He says, you know, I, I should go too because that way I will fully become. Because that's what it's called, I guess, when you are all in the thrall. You uh-huh. become. And they both go downstairs. Or they... they downstairs. They, it's downstairs. They finish, like, digging it out. Now, again, how big is this spaceship? It's effectively an elevator that descends. It's an elevator. Right it's an octagon. Although uh-huh. I think it's actually a hexagon. Um activated portal and then it just descends yes like a long way Mm -hmm. like for a long time right like it goes really far down once again flat ground there's no mountain what is happening um and they enter the command room of what is obviously a spaceship and there are aliens they have fangs, extended skulls, milky eyes, gray skin. Many of them appear locked in Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. They discover one strapped into a giant wheel-like device and conclude that the alien, alien controlled the ship telepathically and once linked could not be removed. I guess we've decided that. I don't know that they ever say it. Uh, now... Who? I'm trying to think. Now here, I, this is wrong because what I'm reading says that Gardner finds Davy encased in crystal, his mind being drained by the ship. Oh no, that's right. Yes, it is. That is right. So, that's right because it's okay. So he breaks him out, mm-hmm. and. That's sort of when Gardner realizes, like, this ship is using the life force, the energy of all of the townspeople to sort of revive itself. It's trying to revive itself. And um, he... F- 
he gets Bobby to like realize what's going on. And then she does. And then she looks so much better. <laughs> I don't know if her teeth grew back, that's, but her skin color came uh, back. She like has clearly broken the thrall of whatever the thing is. And their presence has now awoken one of the quote unquote dead aliens. So they're not dead. They're either in um stasis or they can be revived with the power that they're sucking from the town. It's unclear. Y'all, it's unclear. We don't know. What do you think? Were they dead? Were they just uh, paused? I think that there was supposed to be some sort of conflict on the alien spaceship. And I was very unclear on what was fighting what and why there were so many dead aliens. They appear to be some of them alive. I think they I thought were it was two different kinds of aliens. That's what the impression I got, like there was an invasion and a fight or something. I right. don't understand. And then they got smushed onto the earth and got buried like mm-hmm. years, like thousands of years ago. Right. That was the, the impression the I got impression. Was, was going on. So they get the little boy free and guard basically says, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I mean, basically that's mm-hmm. what he says. Like, I'm going to take this away. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he kills that, alien that had come after them and then he cuts the one that is in the the quote-unquote driver's seat Uh for lack of a better term and straps himself into that thing meanwhile davy and bobby go up to the back up to the surface wherein um the whole town is running to the excavation site to see what what how they've been betrayed by bobby and guard Bobby and Davy come out and they go into the woods and they find a shed and in the shed is Petey and who else is in there? I think the sheriff is in there and I think maybe Grandpa? Yeah, Grandpa. They're in like crystal cages and they're like batteries. They're being sucked dry and so the ship starts sort of moving and pulling out of the earth and Bryant Brown uh, Robert Carradine tries to use a disintegrator rifle on the ship but it bounces back and kills him Whoops. which Nancy knew was going to happen Tracy Lloyd's character mm. was like don't do it and then so she had a better grip what on the technology uh, than he did, and um, he appear. Uh, Grandpa appears comatose, but when Nancy gets close to him, with her back turned to attack Bobby, mm-hmm. he reaches out and chokes her to death. So he still had his own faculties. Right. He dies, but Petey, the dog, lives. <laughs> Which is uh, a step up from all the slaughtered animals we have behind us in the Stephen King stories. <laughs> and the alien vessel begins lifting off, and a lot of the technology, the green glowing mm-hmm. things that are all over the town glowing green for no reason, other than the fact that apparently the color of telekinetic power, t- is, green. power is green. 
Uh, and it's the same green that came out of the golden years' eyes. Yeah. It's his, that's that same. Yeah, There's green. one color green. It's going to be called Stephen King green Stephen in the King future. Green. Right. Uh, they all start exploding. Because what? Why, why not? You? And then Guard uh, guides the ship into the sky and then it explodes. And then, and then Bobby Anderson, Mark Helgenberger is very sad. But everybody else is freed from the alien influence, suffering no ill effects. I guess their teeth just magically reappear in their heads. And then later you see Bobby and and Petey in the forest looking up at the sky. And then we hear Guard reciting some poetry. And that's the end of it. So. Hey, do you know where this was filmed? New Zealand. Yeah. It was not filmed in in Maine. Um overall. No, now, don't don't do this to yourselves, people. Okay. Because so. here's the thing. Here's what I want from a movie. Narrative that makes a lick of sense. Internal sense. Yeah. I don't care if it makes sense in the world that I live in, but I do care if it makes sense in the world that it takes place in. And this doesn't make sense at all, at all. Well, at all. I, in any uh, way. <laughs> the end of the film is, it feels aimless, like just pointless things are happening. Scenes are played really broad. Some of them look like they were played for laughs. Yeah, the tone on this is all over the place, too. That and is I, I want to say, when I was a kid, I'll explain it this way. There was a movie called Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, right? Okay. And this is about a woman who's affected by some sort of alien ray. Or I, can't, I can't remember. It doesn't the matter. The 50s. <laughs> and she turns out to be 50 foot tall, and she breaks through the roof of her house and goes on a rampage looking for her adulterous husband. Oh, yeah, you shouldn't um, probably do that. In this film... She starts growing and growing to this ridiculous size while she's upstairs in her uh, bed. Like, she's being nursed, uh, but she's growing to these ridiculous heights. And even as a kid, I'm going, well, how does she still fit in the bed? Or how big is this upstairs room where she can grow to be 50 feet tall and still fit in the room? Yeah, that's a big room. And it We just, don't have a room that big in this house. It kept going. And I was thinking, as I was watching the movie, even as a kid... This doesn't make any sense. No, she'd end up wearing that house like right. clothes. See, right, Alice in exactly. Wonderland. <laughs> and so, and then eventually she just like pushes through the roof and wanders around. And I'm still thinking, well, how on earth did she fit in that bed? Right. How big is it? But it was kind of the logic of this movie. We start whisking off Trick with, photography. Right. No, that's not. <laughs> we don't dig into the earth, but somehow all these structures from the spaceship appear. Yeah. And again, as you mentioned, there's trees growing over it. How big is it? How does it come out of the earth without creating an enormous hole that takes the whole Just town with it? Just this crater that, yes, Because takes people are standing right next to where the spaceship is supposedly nope. taking off from. And then we have this elevator that goes deep into the earth, so it must be enormous. It must be really, really big. When it blows up in the upper atmosphere, why isn't it raining fire and radiation down on everybody? Wouldn't you take it deep out into space to blow it up so it doesn't destroy the earth when it, you know falls back into the well, atmosphere. Well, he may not have had control over that. It right. might have been a self-destruct mechanism or something like that. And then there's all sorts of weird imagery in the film. Let's not 
ignore the fact that it's not a wheel the alien is tied to. It's an enormous cross with its arms outstretched. Yeah. I'm going to sacrifice my life, so I'm going to tie myself to this cross because I love yeah. my wife. And really, this is where Girlfriend. we're going. Girlfriend. They live in Girlfriend. sin. I'm sorry. They, they are not in married in this movie. And so... <laughs> It, and again, the other thing that you mentioned, what, their teeth go back? Why Why are they instantly, instantaneously, their bodies recuperate and come back to this point of health? Nothing in this film made any sense. No. It didn't, and it was just kid logic, really. You know, everything's fine now. You kill the one zombie. Cocaine logic, the word you're looking for. You kill cocaine. the head zombie, and then all the other zombies turn back into normal people. <laughs> That's kind of what it felt like. Again, axe cop. But I just, for the life of me, I have no idea how anybody watching this originally thought it was frightening. It wasn't, it didn't work as horror. It wasn't scary. It it was almost impossible to take seriously. And you wasted a really good relationship. Jimmy Smits and Mark Helgenberger. They were so good. Are doing a really good job. And you know what? That scene where she asks him to make love to her. And he follows her upstairs, and he's trying to hold her, and her skin is peeling. But he still does it because he loves her. And she's so desperate to be held. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. That scene worked. I'm going, this is a piece of shit movie, and that scene works. <laughs> yes. And Joanna Cassidy's cop. I yes. Mean, despite the fact that she has this stupid collection of dolls, her and John Ashton, who I just Yeah, seen minus it. that dolls thing, because right. what... You I can have dolls, but have them at your home. Seen Do not put those in, in the police um, station. Some kind of wonderful. Playing Eric Stoltz's dad. And he was a great character actor, too. And the two of them have this very awkward relationship because she used to be married to his best friend, and he doesn't know how to approach her. And that was really sweet. And that created a dynamic. So when these two fall, it's really sad to watch because you were rooting for them, right? But so much goes wrong with this movie, and so mm-hmm. much is just lazy. Yeah. You know, we didn't need to turn Jimmy Smits into Jesus. We didn't need to, you know... Uh, there was just, like, here's a symbol we can use in place of doing any actual thinking in this film. Let's fall back on this trope. Yeah. And so it just wound up not working. It no. didn't. And, it, and... This is why the only place right. we could find it was... On YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> yeah, where some, you know, completely. Like, it's not true. It. We have almost every streaming service you can get. Yeah. It's not on, on any of them. Oh. Um, we could have ordered a DVD, uh, but it would have been the two-hour version and not the three-hour version, uh-huh. and I feel like it would have been worse Well, somehow. you mentioned that the three-hour, the two-hour version completely takes out... Or it takes out the relationship... The relationship between the two sheriffs. Between the, sheriff, the and sheriff and the other, yeah. yeah. Because, which makes sense because those are sort of standalone scenes uh-huh. that if you just take them out does not affect the, the full narrative. The only scenes I can think of is when... Uh, are the scenes involving the deputy and how she becomes aware on the date the, the deputy's husband is. But there's so much fooling around, it would be impossible not to know that. Yeah, it, they're not subtle about it. Right. It's the fucking worst. That's the other thing. It's like, don't, don't portray... Like I said, she, the wife is a police officer. Mm-hmm. She's a deputy. She is trained to notice shit. Yeah. Don't make her husband the worst adulterer of all time. And by worst, I don't mean like he's bad at adultery. Mm-hmm. He's bad at hiding his 
behavior because right. he's not hiding it at all in any way, shape, or form. And she would have figured it out. And you know what she, she would have done years ago is, fuck you, but I want a divorce. Everyone in the town knows that Yes, except her, except her. Right. Except the deputy police officer. And I think what? that I'm sure the two-hour version also cuts out really what amounts to Tracy Lord's best scene, which is her and Clifton Young drunk switching cars in the middle of the night because they really did carry that stumbling, you know, yeah. out of cars and falling over. And she actually did that part really well. And she wound up, like I said, being an actually a fairly good actress. But, I, I, yeah, there was just so much, as you said, tone shifts. It was trying to take itself seriously. It's, it winds up falling back on tropes to support it when it can't support its own weight. There are scenes in there that are just so badly done. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not. I don't. Please don't watch this one, y'all. Mm-hmm. You don't need to. It's fine. But Jimmy Smith's <laughs> Mark Helgenberger. That's fine. They're in other things. They, they might be, even just, be in other things together. Just just find some stuff with them in it. I think <laughs> that's the best thing. If you want to see, um, if you want to see more of of Alice Beasley, watch. Uh, moonlighting, although that's very problematic. I've these never days. seen Moonlighting. Where she was Miss DePesto who spoke only in rhymes. And Joanna Cassidy has had a long and storied career, including her appearance in Blade Runner, which took advantage of the fact that she's very tall and athletic. And she has a very dramatic death scene in that film. Um, but there's so much else you can see these actors in that doesn't involve them sort of looking as if they're. Uh, the, and I don't know if you felt this way too. Aside from the makeup work, the visual effects were not very good, no. and there was a real sense of cheapness to this film. Yeah, it felt cheap, even though I know yeah. that, that wasn't the case. Do you know that wasn't? The well, case? I know it wasn't the case when you hire all these actors and you go to the the trouble of doing a four or a three hour uh, film. It just felt really cheap. And the the a lot of that was the lighting. The li- I mean, and just kind of tacky. Oh yeah, twelve oh, million dollars. Where? Right. The fuck did twelve million dollars go? What? Well, I will warn people who are insistent. And that's twelve million dollars in nineteen ninety three. Yeah, I will warn people who are insistent on seeing this film against our advice. Um, of one other thing, the music. The oh. No, there's it, a this has a this movie is three hours and one minutes long. The soundtrack is three hours and one minutes long. <laughs> there's a two or minutes the sco- long. The score. <laughs> See, because there's a term in, in movies they used to use it, Mickey Mousing a movie, which is uh, to essentially use a wall-to-wall score like you do for a Mickey Mouse cartoon, or you did, which music accentuating everything, every moment, every joke. Every gag, everything. And that's what it because felt like. Because you don't trust film. the work. You don't trust the you're, work. So the score is trying to compensate. Yeah. And so the score is telling you when you're supposed to be scared, you're not. The score is telling you when you're having a romantic moment, you're not. The score actually at points seemed to be louder than the dialogue. That might have been the cut that we had. Uh, yeah, we were watching it on YouTube, but which is a rip from something else. So. It was really obnoxious. I really wanted to shut the score up. Yeah. Nobody could have saved this material because the director did not seem to have a real grasp on what he was doing. 
And so I would have preferred it to at least had some moments of peace from this really intrusive musical score. Yeah, the score was a lot. It was a lot. All right. Well, do you have anything you want to recommend instead of the Tommy Knockers? Okay, absolutely. I recommend going to your local um, DVD store. I was going to say video store, but that doesn't exist anymore. And finding a copy of of Five Million Years to Earth, which is the adaptation of Quatermass in the Pit, uh, which is a Hammer film. from the, And it's a really good film. It also has problems with special effects and budget. However, this is the same plot, only so much better. <laughs> and the stakes are so much higher because it was written in the years after World War II. So the notion that evil, not just our evil, our individual evil, but what we do to each other as cultures is some sort of evil pervasive influence that is ancient and falls, it's like a, an evolutionary tool. Like most of Nigel Neal's work, it has all sorts of hidden depths to it. And so I would recommend finding that. Um, we haven't been to the movies much lately. <coughs> so I haven't, don't have anything new, but I would recommend to people five million years to earth uh yeah you can order it on amazon of uh, the blu-ray um uh, also it's on daily motion wow okay so i have to look at the copy i don't there. know if daily motion's legal or not legal uh, daily motion i do find some old stuff there that i can't find anywhere else i've been finding a lot of uh the work of a spanish filmmaker or catalan catalonian filmmaker who had worked in england for years laraz i've been seeing some of his stuff on daily motion and I wish I hadn't because and it might be on the TCM really app. Pervy, yeah, it's it might on be on the, the watch TCM, TCM thing. Right. So you may so be able to find it that way. Do you have something to recommend? I thought I did, but now I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> uh, anything that we've seen recently? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to. We started something recently. We started Wu Assassins. We started with Assassin. We started Evil, which was a really fun TV show. We started Evil, but I don't want to... Mm. Yeah, I know I'm at a loss. I've got nothing. Okay. Because I don't know how things are going to turn out, and I don't want to give people... Oh, the second season of Mindhunters. Yes, go ahead. Tell us about it. I like Mindhunters, the show. It has Jonathan Groff in it. Um, You may know him from Glee. Or if you saw the original Hamilton on Broadway, he was King George. Um, In this, he's different. He's playing an FBI agent. His name is Holden Ford, which is a silly name. But uh, it's about the beginning of CSI, basically. Nope, not the beginning of CSI. The beginning of Criminal Minds. The beginning of the behavioral... uh, The BAU, the Behavioral Analytics Unit at Quantico and the FBI and serial killers, etc., etc. So, that's a show on Netflix. It's two seasons. We just finished the second season. Both of them are very good. The guy that plays Charles Manson in the second season is also the guy that played Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie that came out earlier this year, um, at two different times, and he's very good. 
Well, what I'd like to mention that the lead character is Jonathan Groff, uh, Holt McCallany, uh, and Anna Torv. The, they play the leads in this show. Oh, and Anna Torv from Fringe, y'all. She, all it makes very, me want to watch Fringe. They're all very good. And the kind of gravity that they carry into the situation, because Jonathan Groff's character is kind of a, a whiz kid. And... Uh, Holt McAnally is a old school. He's you know, so good. I've never seen this actor before. He's so good. Bull necked, two fisted FBI agent. And Anna Torv is a woman who has all sorts of hidden depths. She's hiding her sexuality because of the way that she'll be um, treated differently. And, um, you know, trying to come to terms with the fact that she doesn't really register emotion very well. So no. it's this analytic person, this kind of whiz kid who is just can't seem to understand boundaries. And really get well. out of his own way. Right. Like, yeah. And this real old school cop, basically. Yeah. And they're trying to work together to create something because they realize they're onto something more important than what they could be working on individually. And nobody believes that studying mm. the behavior of criminals would lead to be, the, be being able to catch criminals. Profiling is not a thing right. yet. They're inventing it. And this season was about the Atlanta child murders. Yep. And I'm not sure how familiar There's you are with that. There's also the BTK Yeah, which killer. is incidental in this one. I think they'll probably become a bigger part of the third the season. The third season, yeah. But I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Atlanta Child Killings. But it is a chapter in history that really needs revisiting. It's and fucked up, y'all. Even though this particular show can't do it the complexity justice because it's a TV show, it really does bring, uh, point out how really outrageous both the length of time this killer was able to remain active, the inactivity of the police departments, the bureaucracy that was getting in the way of an active investigation, mm -hmm. the lack of... Um, somebody got away with a lot of stuff. But I won't spoil it for you because it's really a program worth watching and that those particular episodes that cover that are so informative and bring back the things I remember when I was a kid and when that was going on. Yeah. It's really, it's a remarkable TV show and well worth watching. There's some brilliant uh, episodes, too. They're just yeah. really well directed and well acted. Yeah, and it looks really good. Like it's, it, David Fincher is one of the main people working on the directing side, and I'm a Fincher fan. Hmm. So that makes it pretty serial killers and David Fincher, and I'm probably yeah, going to like it. I don't like serial killers as a theme, but like uh, Hannibal, it is able to explore it in a completely different way. In this case, they're not yep. glorifying the serial killers. They're nope. investigating them as essentially as problems that need to be solved. Yep. So you're looking at a group of people trying to crack a code or a puzzle yep. to see where this leads them. It doesn't glorify them. It shows them all their sort of dirt and stupidity, and, and that's a particular emphasis of a, of a particular episode in the season is to debunk the myth that they're hyper-intelligent predators because you meet two who are just dumb as dirt. Yeah, you see one in the first season. Ed Kemper uh, is uh, the co-ed killer. Um, and the actor that plays him is extraordinary. He's like hypnotic. Uh -huh. uh, and then Holden wants everybody to be this erudite mm -hmm. You know, and that's kind of what elevated the, right. person, and that is not the reality of it. There's also a really realistic portrayal of Charles Manson in the second season, 
where you become aware of the fact that everyone was looking to him to be a master. And he was a mastermind, but his gift was not on doing anything. His gift was getting into people's head, heads. And that's really well done in this. Uh, it's three guys at a table. But the level of writing and the level of acting, and mm-hmm. this is something we've talked about before, I like good acting. I mm-hmm. like when I can see just the blocking uh, in a performance where you're, and the editing it elevates just a scene with three guys at a table. Yeah. And that really works in this, in this particular scene. It, and there's no green. There's no glowing there's green for no reason. Right. There's not there's a loud soundtrack underneath just... Making you try, trying to make you feel a thing because they're trusting the actors to pull it off is what it is, and they do. So yeah, Mindhunter, I agree with you. That was a great season. Alrighty, I think that brings us to the end. Next week, we're gonna do one eighty, and we're gonna be watching the Shawshank Redemption. Once again, the strange um, electrocardiogram quality of films made from Stephen King's yes. work. Yes, down up. Pitches down, up. up. <laughs> yeah, because that, you know. Also, next week is our 99th episode. Oh my God, 99 episodes. So, that means that the following week is the 100th episode. And I posit, or I put to you. Yes. Do you want to do a retrospective? Yes, 100? I would like to do a retrospective. Or do you want to dive in? <laughs> because the next thing that we're mm. going to do, our 100th episode is set to drop on Halloween. Oh, It's wow. the 31st of October. That's, hey, everyone, that's American mm. Halloween. And we're set to do the stand part Sal- one. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we're set to do the stand, part one of the stand. Okay. But do you want to push it? And have a hundredth episode. Episode. I think we should have a hundred. Okay, hun- so we're gonna do that. Let's see, every hundred. Hundred. Now added to rural and statistics. Oh no! Statistical. Too many difficult oh words. God, yeah. Um, what was your word on the other podcast that we were having the issues with? Oh jeez! I was don't. A, one remember. of the ecclesiastical or religious terms, and you just were fighting with it. <laughs> I got through it. So mean to me he is. <laughs> so next week we're going to watch Shawshank, and then we'll do a 100th anniversary episode. 100th anniversary. Oh, sweet Jesus. Yeah. All right. So in the meantime, uh, if you want to reach out to us, tell us what we should do for our 100th episode. Uh, we can be found at the Latecomers mm-hmm. uh, on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast, uh, latecomerspod at gmail.com at gmail. if you want to email, mm-hmm. uh, at latecomerspod on Twitter. Twitter. And that's that. Mm-hmm. I still haven't gotten us a website. I'm contemplating. Contemplating, y'all. Uh, in the meantime, I remind you to take your medicine, and we remind you better, better late than, than never. never.